We, uh, we're going to jump back into our gospel series today. Uh, it's funny, I was uh, getting ready to preach this morning, and my son, Silas, who's in here somewhere, uh, he, just, he just stuck his head up like, what did I do? He walked up to me and he said, Daddy, my birthday is in 17 days. And I was like, really? And I thought, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's true. And it worked perfectly with my sermon this morning because the first thing that I was going to say is people like their birthdays, don't they? Especially if you are a 10-year-old boy going into 11. Maybe some of the older folks are like, no thanks, I don't like birthdays. But if you're a 10-year-old, you're pretty stoked about your birthday. And there's nothing wrong with being excited about the birthday. It's fun to have parties. But did you know, this is just a random piece of information for you as we head into the Word today. There's only two places in the Bible where it talks about a birthday party. And in both of those places, at the end of the party, someone quite literally loses their head. Only two times. One is in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 40. Pharaoh throws himself a big party. He's a little neurotic. He thinks somebody's trying to kill him, so he beheads his chief baker. And then in the story that we're going to read today, same type of thing. A man named Herod Antipas throws himself a party. And by the end of the party, somebody is headless. So for you that are in uh, first through fifth grade, you're going to pay attention now, aren't you? You're like, this sounds awesome. So we're going to jump in. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We are, if you're a guest here, we've been working our way through the Gospels chronologically. So we're taking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and going through the story in order of time rather than jumping from book to book to book to book. We're just kind of trying to tell the whole story in one fell swoop, which at times is difficult because they tell different stories. Uh, but sometimes the stories are told in three books, sometimes they're told in only one. Last week, we finished the story of Jesus sending out his disciples to become apostles, letting them know that they would be going out into a dangerous world that was full of persecution. And not just persecution like somebody saying, I don't like you because you're a Christian, but potentially the persecution that could even lead to them losing their lives. But he promises them that he's going to care for them in the midst of that, but he does not promise them that it's always going to be easy or that they're even always going to make it out with their life intact. And so we're going to continue. Right after that, it tells us this story, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 20. King Herod heard of it. Right? He's talking about all these things that we've just talked about, all the things that the apostles did all the miracles that they worked, all the ways that they ministered to people. said, so King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. That's an understatement. Everybody's talking about Jesus. He's working miracles. Everyone is hearing about this man Jesus and his apostles and the things that they're doing. So it says, his name has become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of 
Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Like, wait, what? Yeah, we'll talk about that. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, against John, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So as we open this story, we find King Herod, who is the ruler over this area of Israel. Uh, But he's been placed by Rome. He's not actually a real king. His dad, who we've met in the past, was a king. His dad was Herod the Great. His dad was the king that tried to have baby Jesus killed and all of the other infants in Israel. His dad was a ruthless ruler. He killed many of his own sons, his own wives, his own generals. There was a common saying at the time that it was safer to be Herod's dog than his son because he was so neurotic about everybody trying to take his position that if he even got a scent that maybe one of his sons had their eye on the throne, he would just have them killed. And so one of the sons that makes it through to adulthood is his son Herod Antipas, who's who we're talking about today, Herod Antipas. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great, but he's got a bunch of sons because he had a bunch of wives. And uh, now Herod Antipas is the ruler, but he's not really the king. He's what's called a tetrarch. Rome has come in. They've taken control of the whole area, and they gave parts of each area to rulers. And so Herod Antipas, he's the ruler over just basically two cities in the area around it. He's the ruler there in... uh, in Galilee, and in Perea to the south of Galilee. But he lives as if he's king. He talks to everyone as if he is the ruler and the authority and the one who's in charge of everything. The name of Jesus is gaining fame and notoriety, and it's getting so much notoriety that the people who are in these top levels of authority are starting to hear about it. And then rumors start to swell about who is Jesus really, which is an interesting, if you study just through the book of Mark, Mark talks about this all the time. Mark's, one of his main themes is who is Jesus? And he's trying to lead people to understand that Jesus is the son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's trying to get them there. But people are always asking this question, who is Jesus? And so some people start to say, he's Elijah, Elijah has come back from the dead, and that's who Jesus is. And they say this because in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy that Elijah would come back before the Messiah came. That Elijah would come and he would usher in the time of the Messiah, that he would be a front runner to the Messiah. Well, if you've been with us through the story, we know that was John the Baptist, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was Elijah, that he was the one that came before the Messiah, the front runner to prepare the way, to preach repentance, to tell people the Messiah is coming. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells this blatantly. Now, I want to say also, when we say that he is Elijah, we're not talking about reincarnation. Some people are like, wait, he's actually Elijah? No. Biblically, there are types of people. 
Right? You see these Old Testament stories, just like this is kind of a whole other thing, but if you look at Joshua in the Old Testament, the one that comes in after Moses and becomes the leader, the savior that will take the people into the promised land, well, Joshua and Jesus, whose names were actually the same name, Joshua, they are very similar in type. Jesus comes, saves his people, brings them into the kingdom of God. Right? So there's these types. And so John the Baptist is this Elijah-type person. Other people say, no, he's not Elijah. He is a prophet, just like the prophets of old. They want to identify Jesus as just another prophet, just another guy who came and does some good moral teaching, says some good things. Does this sound familiar to you? This is what a lot of people in our world today want to say about Jesus. Jesus was great. Most people, if they really know any kind of history, they're not going to argue that Jesus wasn't there. Like, there's way too much proof that Jesus was there. And they can't argue that he wasn't a good guy because everyone, all the history says he's a good guy. So they say, well, yeah, he was a good guy, a good moral teacher. Except for this, this whole problem where he said he was God. So if you say you're God and you're not, you're a liar. If you say you're God and you are, then you're a lot more than just a prophet. So there's a problem there. So they say, ah, he's just another prophet. But we know he was so much more than that. But then there's Herod. Herod has a very specific idea of who Jesus is because Herod has a guilty conscience. Have you ever had a guilty conscience about something until so you start seeing that thing everywhere? My grandmother raised me, and she would tell me every time she would, like, jump scare me, she would say, the only reason you're scared is because you have a guilty conscience. She's like, what did you do wrong? I like, I didn't do anything wrong, Grandma. Like, so I was convinced until I was an adult that, like, I must have done something wrong. That's called uh, uh, mind games. If you, yeah. um, grandma was good at mind games. Herod has a guilty conscience because he's the one that took away John's head. We find out here why John the Baptist was killed and that it came by the command of Herod. And he killed John the Baptist for the sake of his wife, a woman named Herodias, because John was publicly condemning their sinful marriage. See, if you think you watched that show Maury Povich and they got some weird families on there, like Herod would have been on Maury and they would have been chanting, Maury, Maury. Because Herod... Is messed up, man. Herod was married to another woman, a woman named Phasaelus. She was the daughter of King Eratos IV of the Nabataeans. This created a political alignment between Herod, his people, and the Nabataeans. But then Herod just decides, I don't like Phasaelus anymore. I'm going to send her back to her dad, and I'm going to get myself a new wife. That right there is bad enough. He just, like, got rid of his wife. Well, that obviously made Eratos IV very angry, which leads to a whole war, which is a whole other story for another time, which leads to eventually Herod killing himself. All sorts of terrible things. But back into this story, he decides he doesn't want Phasaelus, and so he looks around and he says, who do I want as a wife? And he sees Herodias, his brother's wife. His brother Philip has a wife, Herodias. It gets worse. Just wait. Not only is Herodias 
his brother Philip's wife. She's also his other brother's daughter. So it's his niece. So Herodias is his brother's wife, his other brother's daughter, his sister-in-law, and niece. And of all the women that he could have, he's like, I want that one. Great guy, right? No wonder they were a little neurotic about, maybe somebody's trying to kill me. Well, yeah, you act like that, that happens. So he takes Herodias, and apparently she's into it because she gets very angry when John the Baptist has the nerve, the absolute audacity to say, you know, this isn't right. What you're doing is bad. Because this guy, Herod, he's supposed to be ruling over the Jewish people. And even though he's not Jewish, or at least not fully Jewish, he is supposed to be representing the Jewish people to Rome. And so John the Baptist goes to him and says, you're supposed to be the representation of of Jewish people, and you are living in this just horrendous sin. A very interesting story, to say the least. Knowing all of this, John the Baptist, being the blunt and honest man, calls him out on his sin. Interestingly, this doesn't seem to bother Herod that much, John calling him out on his sin. In fact, it tells us later, Herod actually likes listening to John. Like he, he finds him perplexing, like he doesn't really know what he's talking about, but he enjoys listening to him, having conversations with him. It's, it says that he protects him. It says that he fears John because he knows that he's righteous and holy. But Herodias, his wife, niece, sister-in-law, hates John the Baptist because in her mind, she's making, he's making her look bad as if she hasn't done that to herself and her loving husband. So Herod won't allow him to be killed because he is afraid of John the Baptist. He knows he's righteous and holy, and he listens to him gladly. But then something happens. There's a birthday party. We've already kind of shown how birthday parties go in the Bible. Herod and Pharaoh, both interestingly, throw themselves a birthday party. Have you ever thrown yourself a birthday party? That's a little weird, right? Like, no one else is going to celebrate me, so I'll celebrate me. Everyone else has terrified me, so I will have a party. And so he does this, verse 21 of Mark chapter 6. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. I want you to catch this. This is boys' night. It's the nobles, it's the military guys, it's the leading men of Galilee. This is not what we call a mixed company. This is boys' night, the wine's flowing, something bad's going to happen. We know this immediately as soon as we read this. Verse 22, the family gets worse, sorry. For when Herodias' daughter, right, so this is his wife, niece, steps sister-in-law and his she has a daughter from her previous marriage so now we're talking about his stepdaughter Herod's stepdaughter she comes in and she dances and she pleased Herod and his guests and the king said to the girl ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you pause when it tells us this In the original language, it's clearer than it is in English. 
This is not her coming in and doing ballet. She is dancing seductively. She is doing what they call the dance of the veils. It's very seductive. It's very sexualized. So we have this teenage girl who's 15, 16 years old, comes into her stepfather's birthday party and dances for him and all of his perverted friends. And it says that they are greatly pleased by it. And so he makes this vow. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Look at this. The daughter goes even harder. Like, Mom just says, I want you to have John the Baptist killed. She comes in, she says, right now, on a platter. Probably trying to please her mom. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The scripture tells us an opportunity came. Whose opportunity? Herodias's. She's the only one who's holding a grudge against John. She's the one who hates him. And she sees her chance to fulfill this grudge and Herod throws himself this big birthday party. He invites, he invites all the boys. They're there. They're drinking. He wants to be respected. He wants to impress everybody. He doesn't want to lose face in the crowd. He doesn't want to look uh, disrespected. And so he makes this vow. Right? Herodias sees her chance. She sees her own teenage daughter, sends her in, which is another horribly depraved part of the story. She sees her opportunity, she goes and dances, and then he makes this vow. And there's so many times in the Bible where you read somebody who makes a vow, and immediately they realize, I should not have said that. And this is one of those times. But what's interesting about this vow is he has no power to keep this vow. Remember, he's not a real king, he's a tetrarch. So he says, I will give you everything you want, up to half of my kingdom. He doesn't have a kingdom. Rome has his kingdom. He has no right to give her a single square inch of land. So he's just trying to look cool in front of the boys. I'll give you everything, up to half my kingdom. And she, Herodias, sees the, sees the opportunity, says, ask for John's head. Herodias probably understands that he can't actually give her daughter the kingdom, and so she asks for something that he can do, and she takes the opportunity to exact her revenge. Like I said, her daughter, who we know from other stories, her name is Salom, or Salome. She comes and she says, I want his head right now on a serving dish. And then verse 26 is so interesting. It says, he was exceedingly sorry. What does it mean to be sorry? <laughs> if you're sorry, don't do it. If you're sorry about something you haven't done yet, don't do it. But 
he says, because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, which is really, he doesn't want to look weak. He doesn't want to look like he can't be in power, and so he goes through with it. He felt sorry because he seems to like John the Baptist. He likes, he likes to listen to him, but he doesn't want to lose face, and so he sends an executioner to kill John, and he does as the girl requests. John's disciples come and take his body, and they lay it in a tomb. I thought we were going to get much further today. I think I'm only going to tell this story. We were going to go on to a whole other story, but we're going to wait. And so I want to say this as we close a little bit early today because it's either early or really late, and we have a whole other meeting. So um, I don't think it's accidental at all that this story is told in this exact place in the chronological story of the Gospels. Jesus pulls his guys aside. He says, I'm sending you out into the world like wolves, like sheep amongst wolves. He says, I'm sending you out and there is danger and you will be hated for my sake. He says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. He tells them all these things that there is legitimate danger in being a Christian. And for us today, it looks different. Like right now, most of us, unless you've gone to Morocco or someplace like that, there's not real danger that you're going to be killed in the United States for being a Christian. But that time could come. The time has been, in the past, we've talked about this before, more people died in the 20th century as Christians, as martyrs, than all the 19th centuries before, all the 19th centuries before that put together. It's a real thing. And so he tells them there is danger if you actually give your life to Christ, if you really live this life as disciples, there's danger. And they go out and they have a great time and, and nothing real bad happens to them at that point. And then right then we hear this story of John the Baptist. Right after he's given this warning, it's almost as if he's also, the word of God is letting us know, like, the danger's real. It cost John the Baptist his life to tell the truth. Now we know John the Baptist was a, Interesting fellow. He's, there's probably people that could have said in a, in a more uh, nice way to the king, like, I, I think what you're doing might not be good. John the Baptist isn't that guy. He goes and just says, you're living in sin. Right? And we, we all know people that are both of those ways. There's those people that just very gently nudge you. Like, Maybe this is a bad decision. And then you get people like my grandma Hey, dummy, what you're doing is dumb. Don't do that anymore. I don't think it's by accident. And I think today we read this, we go through these stories, and it's not by accident that Jesus tells his disciples, and he's telling us through their stories, like following Jesus is not easy. But they go and they do it, and you know what they find? It's so worth it. They get to be a part of building the kingdom of God. They get to be a part of watching people's lives be changed forever. My family and I are watching through The Chosen right now, and like we're only in season two right now, but like this episode we just watched where the, the man who's been paralyzed since he was a young boy, and Jesus comes, and he, he's been beside the, the pool of Bethesda for 
years and years, and he can't get healed. And then Jesus comes, and there's this moment in it, and it's not directly from Scripture, but it's just the way that they tell the story. He, Jesus looks at him and says, stop looking at the water. All you need is me. It was such a powerful moment to me in that story. He's saying, all you need is me. And Jesus says to his disciples, yes, you're going out there into the world that is dangerous. And there could, it could even cost you your life. But guess what? The reward is far greater and all you need is me. Jesus is so good. I hope you know that. I don't get like emotional during worship very often. But I was in the back there. And I love Josh. Don't take this as me. But I haven't heard my wife sing in a long time in front of all you. And she's, she's the super attractive one playing piano today. And she's singing and I'm worshiping, and then there's that one line, uh, in my father's house, there's a place for me. And I don't know what you've gone through in your life, but I've gone through a lot of times where I've said, is there a place for me? Is there a place that I belong? Am I lovable? Am I just broken? And just that moment of that song, In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I am a child of God. And I have that tattooed on my body. I am a child of God. Because it's such an important idea to me. Jesus looks at these men who he loves, who he has devoted these years to. And he says, I'm sending you out. We don't even think about how hard that must have been for him. These are men that he loves. They are like children to him in many ways. And he says, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst the wolves because the work that you have to do is worth it. I think he does the same for us. He sends us out loving us, saying there's a place for for you in my house, and there always will be but I'm going to send you out, and there might be some danger that you'll face. You might go through some hard times. It might even cost you your head. But it will not cost you your place at my table. That's amazing. So the moral of the story is be careful about what birthday parties you go to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an amazing story in your word of you just loving and caring. Lord, an amazing story where we see John the Baptist, this man who you, in one place in scripture, you say he's the greatest man who ever lived. And I'm sure that there was a lot going through John the Baptist's mind in that moment of like, this is it, this is what I've lived this whole life for, and maybe he thinks that his ministry has failed or something like that, but we're still talking about him today as the one who points towards you, and may we all have such an impact in your, world, in your kingdom that people would talk about us the same way, that we were somebody in their life who pointed directly to you. That's our call. Lord, help us to do it. Help us to do it well. Help us to love you, to love others, 
and to help you make disciples for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.